0: I'm impressed with the sunflower. When they first appeared a few weeks ago, I was on my way home and I got sandbagged at the door by Rihanna and Emily. And they said, You are not getting out of the door unless you take at least two sunflowers with you. So they're growing in our back garden right now, but they're nothing like England. So it's very impressive. Anyhow, uh, let's say, uh, do some, some reading together, shall we? We're we'll going to read this morning from Luke chapter 10. And we'll start from verse 1 of Luke chapter 10. This is how the story goes. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest therefore to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not bring anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, next to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed... Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment. Than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you'll go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Then they go out. In verse 17, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. That's our reading for this morning. I don't know if you recognize this guy. He's one of my unfavorite comedians. He's so smarmy, I can't stand him. But Jimmy Carr, who uh, has built his act very much on pouring scorn on people, and particularly religious people, was actually uh, a churchgoer earlier in his life. He was a Catholic, and uh, up till 26, he says, I believed. I genuinely had an imaginary friend called Jesus until I was 26. Looking back on it now, it was almost like being a different person. And certainly the things he says now wouldn't uh, earn him much credit in Catholic churches. But he's always poking fun at Christians and what Christians believe. And one thing I heard him say a couple of years ago is this. So, Jesus died for me? Huh. Well, I'm very grateful for that, but I never asked him to. Big laugh from the audience. And um, that is what we're going to be doing in evening service tonight, looking at that kind of statement. What does it matter that somebody died on a cross 2,000 years ago? Jesus died for your sins. Well, I never asked him to. What's all that got to do with me here and now, today? Does it even make sense? A phrase that's been used quite a bit just recently is the idea that the cross of Jesus was cosmic child abuse. God sending his own son because he needed blood. His jealousy and his dignity had been offended and he was so enraged that somebody had to suffer. So he picked on an innocent bystander, Jesus, and said, right, you're my son, you'll do, on the cross with you. That would be cosmic child abuse. Is that really what the Bible saying? Is that the story of the cross? We sometimes get a little bit uncomfortable when we hear criticisms like that. How do you answer them? That's the question we're going to start exploring tonight in this evening service, if you're able to come. Anyway, compulsory commercial break is now over. Let's get on with the program. Um, you remember that last time we were talking about the way in which Jesus was very, very popular to start with. Um, uh, uh, and people were amazed at his teaching, it says, because he taught them one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And they couldn't believe that even uh, he gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Jesus was not just a great preacher and a t- tremendous t- storyteller, but he had power of a supernatural kind that people in that area had just never seen before. we we'll maybe see more about that later on. But then it all turned around, and we saw last time, uh, when we were tracing this story, that uh, in John chapter 6, you find people saying, we can't listen to this. And lots of the disciples start to leave him and go away. Why didn't they listen? We said last time, it was basically because they wanted an immediate escape from reality. They wanted just to have life nice and comfortable, endless supply of eternal bread, no problems in the future in, in their lives. They weren't prepared for something hard and difficult. They wanted something that would leave them in charge of their own lives. Something that meant that they were still making the decisions. They didn't want to submit to the leadership and the authority of Jesus, whom sometimes they didn't trust very far. And they wanted somebody they could watch, not trust. They wanted somebody who would put on a show for them. Come on, Jesus, do another miracle. How did you get across Lake Galilee last night? You didn't use a boat, did you? And all of that kind of stuff. And they were just looking for the spectacle. They weren't interested in the person. And then at the end of the the story, Jesus turns around to his real disciples and says, well, how about you? Are you guys going to leave me to me? And we looked at what Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. Or in other words, as we put it at the end last time, there's no one like you anywhere. (laughs) You're the only key to God's kingdom in the age to come. We trusted you and you have proved it's all true. Well, Jesus still had quite a few followers. As you can see from the start of the passage that we just read from, 72 people are sent out on the road in his name. So where did these 72 come from? Well, the first thing you've got to see is that Luke chapter 10 follows chapter 9. I'm sorry if that's a big uh, surprise to anybody. But uh, it starts with the words, After this doesn't it, our reading this morning. So you've got to look back and say, well, what what happened before this? And uh, what you find is that Jesus is just spelling out the terms of discipleship and what they mean in chapter 9 in terms that mean that lots of people don't want to follow him. And at the end of chapter 9, if you read it, uh, we don't have time to go into it this morning, but if you read it, you'll find there are three people who come to Jesus who say, I will follow you, but... I will follow you unconditionally, but... And they have a condition in their mind that, uh, that they want. And, and, and Jesus isn't interested in disciples like that. He wants whole commitment. Uncompromising allegiance or nothing. Because it doesn't work any other way. And so he says in chapter 9, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. It's like being on your way to crucifixion. Every day, you say no to yourself and yes to Jesus. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever's willing to lose their life for me, they're going to save it. And he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory, the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And at that point, he picked about 70 people, or is it 72? We'll get onto that in a moment as well. And uh, sends them out to go to the towns around the place in preparation for his visit. So, looking at this story, what, what do you have to focus on? I think there are four things we need to look at very, very quickly. Why did Jesus send them in the first place? Why does he do this? I mean, another thing that happens in chapter 9 is that he sends out the 12 for the first time. And they go out, and they have a successful mission, and they come back, and you might think, well, job done. Jesus sends out another 70 or 72. Why does he do that? What's he trying to do? Weren't the 12 enough for him? Second, who are they? <laughs> Who did Jesus send? We only know that he was another 72. We don't know any of the names. Although, to be fair, people have tried down through church history to try to identify who some of the people were, and uh, some of the lists are a bit funny. But anyhow, the third thing would be, what instructions did he give? What did he tell them before he sent them out? Those things that we've read together, why did he say those things? Let's have a look at that, and then finally, what happened? (laughs) When they came back, what was it like? Why did Jesus send them then, is the first of those questions. This guy, it's Jim Somerville, who's the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Richmond in Virginia. Didn't know much about him before this week, I must admit, until I still looking at this subject. But he preached a very good sermon on, on this passage, and he said, Why would Jesus send his little flock in the midst of a murderous pack? The only reason I can come up with is that he doesn't have a choice. It has to be done. He can't wait until the conditions are safer or easier. There's an urgency to the mission that's communicated in his next sentence. Greet no one on the road, he says. In other words, don't even stop to say hello. Don't even wave to your fellow travellers. Keep your head down, your mission in view. Don't get distracted. And okay, servants of God today... We have a very different role from that 70-odd people that Jesus sent out. I'm going to go with 70 for now, and I can't say 70 or 72. I'll explain why we've got two different numbers in a minute. But uh, we're not like the 70. We're not sent out to do miracles, as clearly they were here. We're not sent out to prepare people in different places for the imminent arrival of Jesus. You don't go on to paint and see front and say, Jesus will be with us next week. I want to tell you all about him. We don't do that. But I think there's a lot in what, the way that Jesus handles the 70 here, in the things that he says to them, that tell us a lot about our job today. We are involved in something big as well. Something that is time-sensitive. Um, it's one old poem. Uh, put, I preached as never sure to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. And that's the way in which we hold out the gospel to other people. This is the one thing that saved me. It's the one thing that can save you. You need what we've got. It's not because we're big. It's not because we're clever. It's not because we think we know everything about the Bible. But it's because we have found something that works in the world that nothing else in the world does. And it's important that other people know about it. There's a story, an old story, about a prisoner in maximum security prison uh, in in, in Britain who had a visit from the, the prison chaplain one day. And the chaplain came into his cell and tried to tell him about Jesus and how Jesus had died for him on the cross and he could be forgiven and all the rest of it. And the prisoner simply said, I don't believe it. And the chaplain said, "Uh, you don't believe it? He said, no, don't believe it. He said, if I believe what you believe, I would crawl on my hands and knees over broken glass to tell it to everybody in Britain. And sometimes we don't seem to excited about it we don't seem too urgent about it and what jesus is saying to these people is don't bother packing properly for this trip don't bother about what you're going to eat or where you're going to go don't even take a staff with you just get out on the road now This is urgent this is important so why did jesus send them i think there were three reasons really first of all he sent them because his mission was to all the nations of the world not just the jewish people <laughs> How does sending 70 people out say that? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 10, you'll find that there is a a verse that talks about all of the nations of the world. Guess how many? 70 of them. Except that in some manuscripts, when it was translated into Greek, it came across as 72. (laughs) Now, in this passage of Luke, there are two different kinds of manuscripts as well. There are some manuscripts that say Jesus sent out 70, and there are others that say he sent out 72. And whichever is the actual number, I don't think it really matters that much nowadays, does it? You can see what they're trying to do. They're trying to hook up what Jesus did with Genesis chapter 10. Because Jesus had already sent out the 12 in chapter 9. And the 12, well, that brings to your mind straight away the people of, of, of Israel, doesn't it? 12 tribes, 12 disciples. Ah, yes, Jesus has come to preach to, to, to the Israelites. But then when he sends out 70, or is it 72. Then you get the message, this is for the whole world. And Jesus needs to do this as well, because he's already started with Israel. He's done part of the job in Galilee. Now he needs people to see the worldwide scope of what he's trying to do. Second reason I think Jesus sent him out was because there were three tasks that needed to be carried out. Three things he had to do. The first, proclaiming the kingdom. Simply saying to people, the king of God is coming. Now, they didn't give theological lectures, didn't hand out tracts with four things God wants you to know or something like that. They didn't know that stuff themselves yet. But they simply said, it's coming, it's coming, get ready for it. And sometimes, that's the most important thing, just creating an awareness in people's minds. I said the gospel message is urgent and we need to take it everywhere with as much enthusiasm and sense of urgency as we can. But that doesn't mean you've got to rush it sometimes. Sometimes you've got to move at the speed of the people you're going to speak to. Uh, There was a guy in America who died a a couple of years ago called Joe Aldrich, who had a fantastic impact on the small town where he lived. And that's because whenever somebody moved in, he was always the first round on their doorstep to talk to them. And uh, he'd help them move in, he'd be helpful, he'd give them all the numbers for the electricity company or whatever else, and uh, he'd he'd do anything he could to give them a a good move in. And then he would just kind of casually say, you know, There are four principles, four things that I've found in my life that have really helped me, and sometime I'd like to share them with you. And he said, often you could see people's face drop, oh, 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 this guy wants to evangelize me. He's not just being nice because he likes me. He wants to sell me something. They say, okay, Joe, tell me what they are. And then you stagger them by saying, not now, no. You're not ready. But when you're ready, I'll tell you. Oh, can't you just give me a hint? No. And so over the next few weeks, as the relationship grew and he was just nice to them, he'd keep on saying, ah, oh, you're almost ready for those four principles. Not quite, no, not quite yet. And he said, he's had situations where the people have phoned him up in the middle of the night and said, Joe, you've got to come round right now and tell me what those four principles are. Yeah. And uh, he's led, I don't know how many people to Christ, simply by being relaxed about it, by giving people time to develop at their own speed and start to understand it and get their head around the whole message. Rushed messages never uh, normally help very much. So proclaiming the kingdom was something that had to happen before Jesus could come and come down and do something himself. Second, performing miracles. They were sent out to show that what they they were talking about was true because it had a power that nobody else did in those days. Now, we don't perform too many miracles in our day and age. And perhaps that's something to do with the society we live in. We're in a society which is anti-miraculous, which finds explanations for almost everything. And not every society in the world is like that. I remember once going to Pakistan for a couple of weeks um, and finding just how in situations where the Christians were the poorest of the poor, where they had no access to education, good jobs, medicine, all of that kind of stuff, miracles were absolutely necessary. I remember speaking at a big convention in Lahore, in Pakistan, and every single night after I'd finished, people queuing up, 20, 30, maybe 40 of them at a time, just to ask me to, to pray for their eyesight, to go to their home and pray that the devils would be cast out that were in it. And all kinds of different things, things I'd never done in my life before. And uh, yet, you could see from the people who were making that request, this wasn't a fanciful thing. This was a routine way that they got help. Because if Jesus didn't help them, nobody was going to And only through the servants of God who would pray for them could miracles actually happen in their lives. Now, I think that Galilee in Jesus' day was a bit like that. It was a place where there were lots of of, of situations where there was just no hope. Economically, it was quite a depressed region. There were all sorts of spiritual forces around it. were not healthy, were not clean, had been there for many, many years, and those miracles I think were essential. But what they were all about was not saying, "Look, I can do a miracle. I'm powerful. Look at this. This is great." They were about saying, "There is a God who loves you and cares for you, and He wants your life to be better, and we can do that." You may not have the chance to do many miracles in your witness to other people as a Christian. But you can at least show the love and the concern and the compassion and the constructive help of a God who really does care for them. And through whatever you do for them, whether it's miraculous or not, they can see the love of God shining through your life. Then the third thing was preparing the way. Getting them ready for the fact that something greater was coming in. And all we ever are are signposts to a reality that's greater than ourselves. That's why you can be relaxed in evangelism. I know we tend not to be, we tend to get very uptight about these conversations we have with people, but we can be relaxed about it because ultimately it depends on Jesus, not on us. D.T. Niles, the great Sri Lankan evangelist of the last century, said evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. (laughs) That's a great definition I think, isn't it? You're doing nothing that points to you, you're doing everything that points to Jesus. Third reason Jesus sent people out would be, I think, because they needed to learn just how much they could trust him. You see, when people go out like that, something happens to you as well. When you have to trust God, when you're in a situation where you're at the end of the rope and if God lets go, then you're sunk, then you start to realize just how real this faith is of yours and how well-founded it is. You need to be able to trust Jesus. And sometimes, Jesus had this strategy, didn't he, of putting his disciples into situations where they would really sweat (laughs) before Jesus gave the answer. Do you remember them trying to help the, the epileptic boy who had uh, demonic problems? And uh, they were trying to cast demons out of him and it wasn't working. And his father was standing there, very unimpressed. Come on, demon, please get out of him. Nice demon. Please, please go back to hell. Get out of him. Good. And it wasn't working. And then Jesus comes over the hill and with a word, the boy is set free. And you can see the disciples looking at him and oh, rats. Why didn't he turn up five minutes ago? Why put us through that? We've got egg all over our face or think of the situation where they're in, the, in the, the, the boat and Jesus is asleep in the prow and the waves start coming into the boat and they, they wake him up Master, don't you care that we perish? We've done everything we can and we're going to sink and Jesus says, peace, be still and it is I think, why, you know, why did you just put us through that ten minutes of nerve-wracking terror that we've just been through? Well, sometimes I think Jesus does that to his disciples just to show them that the power they have comes from him, not from themselves And we need to constantly keep on remembering that. And so sometimes God will put us into situations where we're right out of our comfort zone, where we know we don't have the resources, where we know we can't do it on our own. And we need to remember that sometimes he does that for a purpose. And we We are changed through that experience. So that's why he sent them out, I think. Who did he actually send? Well, let's just uh, say what we can about that, because we don't know any names. As I say, the first list we've got comes from the end of the second century, which is, what, 200 years after all happened? So they were guessing just as much as we were. And I don't think we're supposed to know who these 70 or 72 people were. They're people whose names are not recorded. Now, this is the biggest missionary force that Jesus sent out in the course of his lifetime. They did an absolutely crucial job at an absolutely crucial stage and we don't even know their names. That's the way it sometimes works in the kingdom of God, isn't it? We are, have this dangerous uh, tendency to set up a Christian star system and top musicians, top preachers, great evangelists, wonderful book writers, all sorts of people become the stars in the firmament, and often they let us down because we put too much weight on them. Jesus didn't do that. And the greatest servants of God down through history, you can check this out in Christian history, are often the people whose names we just don't know. And the question is, am I prepared to be buried for him? Is it about my reputation or is it about his glory? How much credit do I need for the things that I do in his name? So people whose names are not recorded... People who didn't know very much either. And this is encouraging, isn't it? Because you might think, I can't really hit the streets of painting. I can't really talk to my next-door neighbour unless I have a better understanding of the Bible and history and theology and archaeology and all sorts of other things. But that's not what you're called to do. You're simply called to be a witness. And a witness is somebody who speaks about what he has seen or heard in a law court. If a witness starts trying to give advice about the trial and says to the judge, if you ask my opinion, the guy in the dock, he's as guilty as he could be, because I I, he's got a very shifty expression. The judge will say, please, can we just stick to the facts? Let's just talk about what you've seen and what you've heard. And that's all any of us have to do. Just explain what God has done for us. And that's what these people who didn't know very much were sent out for. No, no, it's not. They were people who didn't expect very much, because they come back saying, Lord, we said, go away, please. To the demons. And you did it. I can't believe it. We we have power. It's amazing. It's fantastic. And Jesus says, yeah, but don't rejoice about that. An even greater miracle has happened to you. Your names are actually written in heaven. God has them in a book already up there. That is a real big miracle. All sorts of power will flow through that you don't expect. And you'll find God picking you up and using you in situations where you feel totally helpless and, and without any power whatsoever. And God's power will flow through you. So, um, don't get excited about that, but get excited about the big things he's done for you already. He says, I'm sending you out as, as, as uh, lambs in, in the, the, the place of wolves. Who were these wolves? Well, there were lots of them. When you start looking at the society they were sent out in, there were the Herodians who believed that the Herod family, who weren't even properly Jewish, the Humeans, they, they were the only hope for the country because Herod had built a, a country that was wealthy and was doing okay. Well, down in the south end, anyway, he wasn't too good in Galilee and uh, most of the money went into Herod's own pockets but hey, never mind, he'd built a temple, he built a new city called Caesarea and they believed that anything that was politically against the Herod family meant you had to die. On the other hand, you had the Pharisees who believed that the only hope for the nation was to keep all of the laws that they had invented in the last few centuries. There were the Sadducees who believed that the Pharisees had got it completely wrong, but uh, anything that threatened their power base because they always lied the high priests, that was bad as well. And you can see how Jesus could have a run-in with any of those groups. There were the Zealots who just wanted to assassinate everybody and set up a, 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 a new uh, Jewish empire in the country. There were the uh, tax dodgers, people who were doing... Uh, uh, very well because they weren't paying their, their taxes. They were going to get come up until 1866 when uh, there was a tax rebellion. The Romans simply marched into the country and killed them all. But they were there too. There were the Quislings who were in pay of Rome reporting on other people. There were the pagan settlers, the Greeks and the Romans, who'd moved in and around Galilee. was a hodgepodge of different races, different religions. In the town of Sepphoris, just a few miles around the lake from Capernaum, there were at least four pagan temples that we found. There were criminals, there were people who were profiting from the situation uh, to, uh, to rob one another and, uh, uh, and uh, act as bandits all over the place. It wasn't an effective police force. There were the scribes who uh, were uh, in the, the pocket of the Pharisees. There were all sorts of people. There were the Judeans. The evidence is that the 70 were sent down south towards Judea. In Galilee, Jesus was a Galilean. He was one of our boys. He's all right. But when you go with an accent like that down to the sophisticated, pleasing, never and The kingdom of God's coming. Yep, Jesus is the man you want. He's, he comes from Halifax and he worked in a factory. That's not going to go down too well, is it, in, in the sophisticated south? So you've got all these people, lambs in the midst of wolves, and sometimes Jesus sends us into situations where we think, "Whoa, what's He doing with us here?" But it's necessary. That's why He did it. Saint Teresa of Avila, uh, who lived in the, the 16th century, wrote this: "Christ has no body now but yours." No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. God has sent you out here because Jesus is not here himself. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. You are his body. And since Teresa was absolutely right. We are the people that God has chosen to use to bring about his purposes on earth. Just us. He has no plan B. What instructions did he give? Well, there's lots of things there, aren't there? We don't have to really talk about them. Uh, time's gone through already. But what instructions did he give? First of all, he said, go. Don't stay at home. Understand the risks. Understand that you are going to the midst of wolves. But go anyway. Just trust me and go. He said, bring peace wherever you can. When you go to somebody's house and they're putting you up for the night, like in this picture here, uh, Say, uh, peace be on the house. Now, that was a traditional greeting, but Jesus said, make sure you don't miss it. Because you want people to know that you are bringing them something good. Something that's going to bring shalom, wholeness, uh, everything that they want to that house through me. So don't go in a combative state of mind. Um, Don't knock on the door and say, we have a little tract to give you about Jesus. uh, He's coming soon and the kingdom of God is coming to you, but I suppose you're not interested. I suppose you're Pharisees in here, aren't you? You know, Don't do that. Just be friendly and uh, uh, bring peace wherever you can. And don't prioritize your own needs. I mean, when you're living at somebody el- in somebody else's house, then you may have a good deal or you may have a bad deal. Having been on the road for a couple of years with a Christian rock band, I know all about that. Sometimes you stay in some dreadful places, and sometimes you stay in some luxurious places. Oh, this is all right. I could get used to this. And the thing is, you've just got to take it all graciously. You've got to take whatever God is, is giving you. You don't try to shift it around. Well, I think I'll just move down the road because they've got better chocolate biscuits next street. You can't do that, can you? You've just got to take what God... Because it's not about you. Your own needs are not the priority. The needs of the mission, that's what it's all about. They warn those who won't, listen, he says... If people really will not agree with you, they take issue with your message and say, I'm not listening to this stuff, then leave them. Shake off the the, the dust of your feet against them. Let them carry on. Respect their decision, but warn them, I'm coming, the kingdom's coming, this is real stuff. If you won't listen now, you must listen soon. And that's important, isn't it? To respect other people. Uh, I remember a preacher once once saying, uh, when Jesus saw the rich young ruler... He loved him, but he didn't change the qualifications. He gave him a message that he couldn't receive. And Jesus, loving that young man, had the self-control to stand there and watch him move away and not lift a muscle to get him back. Jesus knew he'd taken a decision and Jesus respected that. So warn those who don't listen. Just don't think, oh, well, okay, you think differently from me, okay, I'll go. It's not like that, warn them but recognize that they have the right to decide for themselves. And finally, don't look for personal success. We've talked about that. Even the demons are listening to us. It's fantastic. It's wonderful. Oh, I'm going to start the first, first uh, uh, Galilean ministry to uh, uh, cast out demons. No, no, don't look for personal success. Be more amazed that God has accepted you in the first place than any of the gifts he's giving you. And uh, Jesus says, you know, people will reject me. People will not listen. And he names all of these Gallican towns, Chorazin, Capernaum, and the lake Bethsaida, and he says, listen, they are places that already reject me, and you're going to find that too. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Don't take it personally, but realize the importance of what they are rejecting. Here's um, Jim Somerville again. Um, This picture is taken from his little paper in Richmond in Virginia, and uh, it uh, focuses on the number plate on his his car, (laughs) K-O-H-2-R-V-A. And it stands for, says Jim Somerville, Kingdom of Heaven to Richmond, Virginia. (laughs) And he said, my job is to build God's kingdom where I am. And he knows all about that because his father was a pastor too, down in Alabama. And one day he was given the honour of uh, saying the prayer at the meeting of the White Folks Association, which was basically the Ku Klux Klan. And he knew what he was being invited to do, They refused it. That night there was a burning cross on their lawn and threats from Klan members over the next couple of weeks. And the family had to leave in the middle of the night and go off to Richmond, Virginia, where the guy is now. And so he saw in his own father's example how much it can cost sometimes to build the kingdom of heaven and stand for what is right and uh, back in last november do you remember nick fuentes he's the um guy who uh, uh, donald trump got into trouble for having a meal with back in november last year fuentes is a supremacist he's somebody who believes that white uh, culture being exterminated in america immigration must stop he's a covid denier he's a holocaust denier the things he says about jews i really don't want to repeat here and uh, In his blog, uh, when that happened, Jim Somerville wrote about how difficult it is to love people like that. And he said, that's what we're called to. I don't think the church should ever be a place where we love everyone but, or everyone except. I think it should be a place where we love everyone with no exceptions. In fact, it should be a school of love where we we practice until we learn to accept those who are different. He said, somebody gave me a plaque that read, just love everyone, I'll sort them out later, God, (laughs) God. Yes! Jesus even told a parable to that effect once, remember? The parable of the wheat and the weeds, where the owner of the field tells his workers not to pull up the weeds because they would pull up the wheat right along with them. Wait till the harvest, Jesus advises. God will sort them out. Maybe until then we could do our best to just love everyone. Wouldn't it be better than just hating everyone? And that's what they were called to do. So what happened finally? First, people heard about Jesus in far more places. Jesus could never have reached all of those places himself, geographically, under the limitations he'd put on his own physical powers. There's no way that he could have done it. And those people were introduced to Jesus, the Jesus who was coming down the road behind these, these 70 people, by seeing first the lives of those that Jesus had already altered. And it's the, often it's the transformed life that convinces people about Jesus. In our house group... Back in Exeter this week, uh, we were thinking about what first led us to Christ. And Steve Davis, who's the manager of the, the, uh, the postal centre in, in Exeter, responsible for all my letters arriving late, um, Steve was saying, you know, I became a Christian when I was already an adult just because of other Christians. He said, I, I hadn't read a word of the Bible. It didn't make any sense to me. I knew my wife had religious tendencies, but that's all it was in those days. And just meeting Christians... It just introduced me to a reality that I'd never met before. Sometimes that's what happens. Jesus speaks through the lives he's already all told. They were changed. They learned as a result of the experience to trust Jesus more. And I'll bet those 70, even if we don't have their names, are a large part of the 120 people who were meeting in Jerusalem after the resurrection and praying before the day of Pentecost. I'll bet they were there. And uh, they were changed, I think, for life because of what they went through. Third, the job was completed. They did what they set out to do. Even though they started with very few expectations, it was done. And Jesus didn't need to send them again. And then forth, they disappeared from history. Their job was done. We don't need to know their names. We don't need to build stained glass windows or shrines to them. They did their job and they will get a far greater reward than our acclaim and favor could ever give. Going back to St. Teresa for the very last word on, in this talk. She said this, let us do our part and God will then do what he wills. This is God's cause and all will end well. My hope is in him. Do not be distressed. Let's leave it there.